please join me in welcoming PLO's Chief Representative in America, Ambassador Zumblatt. Dr. John Duke uh, Anthony, the colleagues and friends, and the board of the National Council on the U.S.-Arab Relations, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, this is a great honor and a privilege to invite me today to address you about the future of Palestine and the Palestinians. But before I do that, allow me, this is an opportunity, Dr. Anthony, to acknowledge the role that your council has been playing in advancing the U.S.-Arab relations and understandings, the crucial role that you played throughout the years in nurturing and expanding the U.S.-Arab relations, your congressional briefings, your conferences like this one, and your many study abroad programs for American students, your fellowship programs are all key building bedrocks to sustaining the political, social, and cultural bridges between our communities and the U.S. Thank you very much for doing that. Thank you very much. From the bottom of our hearts, we take this opportunity to salute you. This year's conference is timely indeed, as events in our region and developments across the globe have made for an abundance of uncertainty. To many of us, these are the unsettling times. Yet, I would invite us to look at the uncertainty as a clearing, a clearing where new things can be created, a space where the not possible suddenly becomes possible. Of course, uncertainty, by definition, harbors risks. Nobody knows this more than the Palestinians, by the way. There is no denying of that. But it is also the condition for opportunity. We are therefore well advised to note and seize these opportunities while they are still, in fact, a possibility. I have been asked this morning to give a few remarks for the session entitled The Future for Palestinians. Well, as you may know, I have no crystal ball. But I will focus on the current context and analyze the present situation to identify the necessary elements for the path forward. I do so with the intention of authoring that future, not just witnessing it. And I would invite all of us to do the same. An esteemed panel has been assembled to discuss this topic from a variety of angles, and I see some of them just arriving. And I think this is a great opportunity to actually discuss this topic from its various backgrounds. But without going into details, I can identify three key elements 
that are fundamental to advance the future for Palestinians. The first element is the recent reconciliation agreement between Fatah and Hamas under the auspices of Egypt. And the return of the central legitimate government to Gaza only a few days ago. Actually, it's been two weeks ago already. The second element is the new Palestinian generation. The Palestinian youth. I see a few of them around here, not less than 10 or 15. Two of them just walked in. The third element of how do we define the future, how do we look into the future, what would be the foundation of that future is the Palestinian community outside of Palestine, the expats, the exiled, the refugees. I also see a few of them in this room this morning. Of course, the most recent development in the reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas that was signed, the agreement that was signed in Cairo two weeks ago, is the first of the, these elements to look into the future. I won't go on to the, onto the, the, the details of the agreement, but rather I will discuss its significance to the future for Palestinians. The fact that we reached it is in itself important, without even going into the contours of it. It shows that despite the many challenging differences between us and Hamas, and there are differences, sometimes big, but despite these challenges and differences, we are able to distinguish the important from the essential. The important from the essential. It is not as if we have abandoned core principles or have changed our perspective on the national or on our national goals. On the contrary, it is precisely because we understood more deeply and more intimately how to serve our national goals that we looked beyond our immediate interests, interests and, our, and looked into more into our core values. The agreement is in its early stages. And the journey will be difficult, very difficult. The path ahead for Palestinian unity is not going to be an easy one. We all realize that. Yet, our capacity to differ while maintaining lines of communications and the integrity of our institutions, national institutions, was one of the most important lessons we carry forward. A bleak decade has passed 
No more. No more. And we would like all segments of the Palestinian society to embrace this approach and diligently keep the present the fact that we are all on the same side in the end. We disagree on the path. We do, many of us, and it's healthy. One of us say we get to our, to our goal from that direction. The other say that direction is better. It's fine. It's good. It's vibrant. It's healthy. It's needed. We also disagree on the methods of getting to our goals. But our goal is one as Palestinians. One. Our flag is one. Our final destination is one. Our occupier is one. Our oppressor is one. Therefore, we really celebrate our ability to preserve the unity of our people and the, to embrace the renewal of our democratic process. It's long overdue, we know. But we needed that reconciliation agreement, and thanks to Egypt, and I see an Egyptian colleague of ours here and the Egyptian diplomats, we needed that agreement. So we revert back, we revert back to the Palestinian people inside Palestine and outside Palestine. They are the owners of legitimacy. They should elect their national leaders. I promise you, national, national elections are on its way. The second ingredient shaping the future for Palestinians is the new generation, the youth of Palestine. And you, you know we have a growing population of young, energetic Palestinians who are facing the horrors of the occupation with ingenious ways of peaceful resistance. Ingenious. They respond to the acute economic hardship they face with greater determination to overcome them through education, entrepreneurship, and preservance. The high value we place on the education for the future generations is clear and rewarding and paying off. It took us 50 years almost. I also see a couple of Palestinian professors around. Right, Noura? It's paying off. Palestinians have the highest ratio of PhD per capita graduates worldwide. Our illiteracy rate is almost zero. Almost zero. Both male and female, by the way, to be precise, education level among female in Palestine is higher than male. Much higher, actually, than me. We provide the international community with innovative future leaders that are exceptional in their fields and contribute to groundbreaking developments. And I have, I wanted to list many of these names, many of these names, but I was touched 
by Iqbal Asad, who was born in a Lebanon refugee camp, who became the youngest medical doctor in the history of mankind. And now she is treating many of patients globally. And I can give you the examples of young Palestinians who are not only unapologetic about their Palestinian identity, but are contributors to the global well-being. But in the interest of time, I will move to the second component. which is the, the, our exiled community. You know, we have more than half of the Palestinian people living outside Palestine. Not by choice, mostly, but by force, refugees. And while the role of our communities outside flowed over the decades, there is no denying its indispensable role in sustaining and moving our struggle forward. I see it here in the US. I'm flying now after this conference to Nicaragua to meet the leaders of our community in Latin America and the Caribbean. I, you cannot overemphasize their crucial role throughout history. They have started the Palestine National Movement in the 60s, our, our refugees our exiled communities. And today, there is a historic task upon them that I believe they are ready for it. We have a lot to be proud of in our exiled and the diaspora communities. And here, I want to give special attention to our community here in the US. When I look at you, Noura, and Yusuf, and Talib, I see many around. And many other Palestinian Americans I, I meet across the US. I cannot but feel hopeful and inspired. Hopeful and inspired. And appreciate your immense potential in this great country. Of course, we shouldn't forget our community's trailblazing work done here the generations before. From Edward Said, whom we hold very close to our heart, to Ibrahim Abu Lughud, many great Palestinians, Nasir Aruri, who have contributed to the, to the advancement of this country and the advancement of the US understanding of the world and contributed greatly to the advancement of their people's rights. But also, we believe that Palestine today in the US occupies a significantly more prominent space in the national discourse of America in the media as well as in the culture. Only a few days ago, I attended the Palestine Film Festival. Every other day, there is a, a cultural event in Washington and other states about the Palestinian culture. The fact that we have active pro-Palestinian rights groups on campuses across the US, working every day to keep the issue alive and normalizing Palestinian rights as human rights for the US audience is a great achievement. It did not come of nothing because of the work of our community, the solidarity of the American people. That all across these campuses, the issue is whether you are for or against the legitimate human and political rights of the Palestinian people. Go to any campus now. It is almost as prominent as was the civil rights movement in the US. And I say it being humbled by what I see everywhere I go in the US. 
This is the hard work of our community. This is years and generations of investment. But it's coming of age and of fruition. Coupled with that achievement is the amazing work on harnessing solidarity with other communities here in the U.S., mobilizing grassroots-based grassroots-based from across the universe, diverse, sorry, across the diverse fabric of U.S. communities. Again, not a small achievement by any measure. Related to that point is how new generations of Palestinian Americans are embodying what it looks like to be unapologetically Palestinian and American. An organic combination of identity that is both rooted in Palestinian heritage and fed with great American values of freedom, equality, and dignity. The first Palestinian generation could not do this. It was difficult for them. But the second and the third and now the fourth are able to beautifully combine both their Palestinian identity and their American identity. Finally, I want us to also take a step back and look at all of that. Take a few steps back and look at all of that. The journey has been very difficult, painful, painful. But we have come a long way, brothers and sisters, very long way. I am always reminded by Howard Zinn's quote, one of my favorite, when he said, and if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. Speaking of the future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, bad, Occupation is bad. Colonization, displacement, and replacement is bad. Apartheid is bad. It's not a human, natural behavior. Besiegement of an entire people is bad. Denying of basic rights, including the right of people to even visit their families, let alone return to their homes, is bad. But he finishes by saying that the defiance is itself a marvelous victory. And hell, we have defied all the bads. As we mark the hundred years since the infamous Balfour Declaration that authorized without any consent, right or authority from the Palestinian people, the land of Palestine to another people, to the 70 years of the Nakba, or the catastrophe that forcibly displaced approximately two-thirds of our nation, creating one of the largest refugee populations to date, to this year marking the 50th year of the occupation in which we experience the expansion of settler colonialism on a daily basis in East Jerusalem and the rest of the occupied territories. But let's not forget that all these milestones 
were intended, intended to extinguish us, all of them, from the Balfour to the Nakba to the military occupation. We were not meant to be. Yet, despite all this, we exist and we flourish and we build and we grow and we have growing international solidarity. Only a few days ago, we joined the Interpol. I mean, the criticisms for us joining the Interpol made me think that, oops, maybe by mistake we joined the Mafia. But we joined the Interpol as a full member state. The wheels of history has got to go in that direction. Because guess what? You know, no matter what, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what, and you know, this is not written, but I always remind myself of the great saying by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King when he said, yes, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It does bend towards justice, no matter how slow it is. It does. And my friends, I believe that you and us and millions of freedom-loving people around the world will always stand by, judge, by justice. Long live Palestine, long live America, long live justice, and definitely the future will be better than the last 100 years. Thank you very much. Sir, can you put into context Jerusalem and the President's pledge to uh, relocate the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? You're absolutely right. So should, um, should the U.S. Uh, administration move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, I think they would have dismantled the very basis of the peace process. It would be over. That would be the step that would end any prospects for uh, a U.S. at least sponsored uh, 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 Palestinian slash Arab Israeli uh, peace accord. Uh, why is that? Because number one, it's been the U.S. long-held policy for the last 50 years and the international consensus that East Jerusalem is an occupied territory. It's as simple as that. It's not just the Palestinian position. It's not just the Palestinian demand. It is the international consensus, including the UN Security Council resolution only a few months ago. Well, it seems I have a problem with timing. It's been more than a few months ago. December last year. Resolution 2334 that clearly defined East Jerusalem to be city under occupation and all the illegal Israeli settlement expansion must cease and an international system must be in place to monitor and actually bring to account Israeli actions. That's number one. So it's a, it's a U.S. slash international policy. Number two, East Jerusalem is not claimed by, by Palestinians. It's owned by Palestinians. We don't claim it. It's ours. 360,000 Palestinians own Jerusalem for hundreds of years, for millennia. This is not a claim from above. This is a genuine grassroots claim from below. The, the thing from above is the colonization and the insurgent, the illegal insurgent 
of settlers amidst amidst our communities. By the way, clearly defined as a war crime according to the four Geneva Convention, and I dare to go into international law. We have international lawyers here. The second reason, and this is something we told the U.S. administration very clearly, that should the U.S. because some people say that you know the U.S. may move the embassy to West Jerusalem, not to East Jerusalem. And if they do so, you know, the Palestinians want East Jerusalem. And international law is very clear about East Jerusalem. And yes, I can confirm that the capital we seek is East Jerusalem. Yes. But Israel has long annexed East Jerusalem, illegally, but using its legal instruments, as in the Knesset. And as such, if you move the embassy to anywhere east or west of Jerusalem, it's a tacit Acknowledgement of Israel's annexation of East Jerusalem, which we refuse wholeheartedly. <clears throat> so if Israel goes tomorrow to the Knesset and actually de-annex East Jerusalem and announce, declares, acknowledges the military occupation of East Jerusalem and that it, indent, it, it uh, intends to end it, we will talk. Third. Jerusalem is a final status issue. It has been agreed as a final status issue by all successive Israeli governments and American administrations. To unilaterally determine it by one step by the U.S. would definitely dismantle any prospects for a peace process. Would renege, would make the U.S. renege from the last 25 years of being the sponsor of the peace process. Finally, you have witnessed only a couple of months ago, I, I hope this time I'm not too far from the timing side of the story. Only two months ago, the people in Jer our people in Jerusalem, the Palestinian people in Jerusalem. In July, did you see that moment, that defiance? Tens of thousands of people using the prayer mattress as a method of resistance, defying Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli methods of trying to actually confiscate their religious sites and segregate, control, divide Al-Aqsa Mosque. So the issue of Jerusalem is the one issue that brings not only the 12 million Palestinians together, as you have seen, but brings hundreds of millions of people, be it Christians or Muslims, around the world. This is the one most sensitive issue. Do not touch it. Do not touch it. This has to do with people's history, identity, worship places. There can never be a Jerusalem that accepts one group over the other. Exclusive control. Jerusalem has never accepted this and will never do so. So the short answer to your, to your question it would be a very bad idea, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir.